All right, team, let me tell you about NewZest, clean plant-based nutrition products to meet the demands of modern life. And I'm super excited to announce that they are a sponsor of Wikipedia. With over a decade of experience and a presence in more than 20 countries worldwide, NewZest has emerged as a leader in providing innovative solutions for those seeking healthier and more sustainable choices. In a world where people are looking for clean labels, easily digestible ingredients, and allergen-free options, NewZest delivers and totally has you covered. Clean Lean Protein is a plant-based protein powder and contains all nine essential amino acids. It encourages recovery, vitality, muscle repair, and growth, and helps you hit your protein requirements, which you know I am all about. One of my favorite products is their Good Green Vitality. It's the gold standard in multi-nutrients. It's designed to make complex nutrition simple. The Super Blend is carefully formulated to address all aspects of health. 75 ingredients working together to support everything from digestion, immunity and healthy aging to stress, energy and cognition in one daily serve. Grab yours today, guys, with a sweet 20% discount for being a listener of the show with the code Wikipedia over at their website. And we will pop a link in the show notes for you to be able to do that. All right, now back to the show. Welcome. Hi. I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, it's Mickey here. You're listening to Wikipedia, and. This week, I have on the show Dr. Christabel Yeo. She's an integrative physician, and she works in the field of mitochondria, energy, metabolic health, and chronic fatigue. Today, we discuss the influence of our mitochondria on energy levels and what the major influences are on the health of our mitochondria. We focus on the impact of long COVID on mitochondrial health and what can be done to restore health and mitigate the fatigue symptoms that many people experience. And over the course of the pandemic, but obviously post-pandemic, Dr. Yu in her clinic spends a large amount of her time helping people overcome long COVID complications. So we discussed testing that she also recommends people do and what tests can show us about our mitochondrial health. And we go in depth into some of the strategies that she recommends people do. Now, just on the whole fatigue aspect, though we sort of focus on long COVID, prior to COVID, Dr. Yo worked a lot with people just on chronic fatigue as a rule. So any sort of fatigue-related conditions uh, could be enhanced through some of the strategies that we discussed today on the show. Dr. Christabel Yeo has had over two decades of experience in clinical care, most of which has investigated the root causes of chronic disease. Dr. Yeo is passionate about sharing her knowledge on the interconnectedness of human metabolism, biology, and behavior, and dedicates her practice to working with patients with complex chronic conditions, neuroimmune-mediated, or chronic inflammatory illness. 
and she helps address the chronic conditions that can be related to adverse factors in her patients' lifestyle, nutrition, and environment to help optimize their overall function and well-being. And I have um, listened to Dr. Yeo presentations at several conferences over the last few years and she is so knowledgeable. Dr. Yeo graduated from medicine at the University of London in 1999 and obtained her membership with the Royal College of Physicians in the UK. She also has a master's degree in nutrition from King's College in London and after practicing hospital medicine she worked as a general physician with an interest in nutritional and environmental medicine. She was a director and past president at the Australasian College of Nutritional and Environmental Medicine and is active on the teaching faculty there. And I have included links to where you can find Dr. Yeo at her clinic, Next Practice Health, uh, and you can see them in the show notes. Just before we crack on into the interview, a reminder that the best way to support the podcast is to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast listening platform. That increases the visibility of the podcast out there and amongst the literally thousands of other podcasts. So more people get the opportunity to learn from the guests that I have on this show. All right, team, please enjoy the conversation that I have with Dr. Christabel Gio. Christabel, thank you so much for taking the time with me this afternoon to chat about your work. I really enjoyed your um, conference presentations at ACNAM, and I've heard you speak before on mitochondrial dysfunction, and I found your your talk just like really instructive with regards to long COVID and fatigue and it's stuff that I am seeing a lot of clients with and I would love to do a bit of a deeper dive into that and fatigue in general um, this afternoon. So thank you so much. Absolutely, Mickey. My pleasure. Um, can we first start, Christabel, because obviously you're a doctor, but the way that you practice medicine, I feel, must be quite different to the usual sort of GP type um, uh, doctor, if you like. How did you get into the sort of functional medicine and become interested in mitochondrial function? Well, I've been in practice almost 20 years, so it would be too long a story. <laughs> um, but I, I, I started my journey, well, I left hospital medicine when I was um, a gastroenterology trainee because I figured that I couldn't do very much for my patients in 10 minutes. And that's where I was practicing in, in the hospitals in London. And um, I um, decided to get a, a nutrition master's degree clinical nutrition and then I just worked in private practice uh, dealing with various uh, chronic fatigue and um, chronic disease states largely using nutrition and environmental medicine so my training is more in actually environmental medicine where you um, are instructed much more than you would be in any medical degree on uh, the effects of molecules like toxic molecules toxins and so on and how they impact our biochemistry detox pathways immune pathways cellular health all that sort of stuff so that's where i started and then because uh, my patient cohort was mostly a chronic fatigue cohort then you just have to learn all the relevant things so of course mitochondria come in pretty quickly yeah, for sure. And Christabel, how was it for you when you, you know, obviously you go through medical degree and you, you learn all the things to then start learning information that 
that was was any of it at odds with what you learned in your medical degree and or actually was it just a was it just entirely different learning for you it's just an entirely different learning yeah nothing at odds in what you learn in medical school I mean all of that is still relevant because if you see acute medicine cases you need to to still apply or what you learn like in pharmacology and so on but this just goes even further because you can bring in all the lifestyle and other um, environmental medicine methods of depuration pure depurification detoxification and so on uh yeah and that just becomes more relevant as you get more uh more into chronic disease not acute medicine yeah, for sure. And obviously, I, I want to get your insights into the mitochondria, what they do, the dysfunction, etc. But first, just in terms of fatigue in general, you know, fatigue has been very much in um, in my mind over the last few years with regards to long COVID, vaccine injuries, and and things like that. Yet, of course, for many years, you know, for for decades before, there have been people suffering from fatigue. And I remember my uncle, actually, he was in bed for several months. I remember when I was was like 40 years ago with what was just sort of like ME, I think it was, was called. But no one really... It's not that no one took notice, but it was almost dismissed as, as something. What are some... Do you see any major misconceptions out there about fatigue in general uh there's very many a few ways to see that or answer that question um so let's take it from the perspective of the medical profession and how they see fatigue so if it's if someone goes to their gp frequently and just says i'm tired all the time i'm tired i wake up i don't have refreshing sleep i'm tired then it's because medical diagnostics and basic blood tests don't quickly find you any information once you know they're not iron deficient and they're not anemic and so on, um, then the doctor's quite likely and quite quickly ready to think that is, oh, you need a holiday, you're stressed, um, it's psychological. So I think that would be the biggest misconception on the medical perception of um, fatigue. And then maybe from the public perspective uh, or the person experiencing the fatigue, there could be different ways to feel fatigue too. So you would drill down on what kind of tiredness the person has of the brain, of the body, um, different states of energy through different times of the day and so on. Um, But maybe just generally speaking, uh, a misconception might be that uh, they just might need to exercise more or eat more, perhaps for more energy or, you know, tired, so eat again, um, can't think, so eat again, <laughs> tired, eat again. So that's probably, as you would see it in your work, um, the biggest misinterpretation of our body, thinking you're tired and you might just need more food. Yeah. Yeah, whereas actually with the type of work you do, it's more about the inability to utilize fuel effectively at that mitochondrial level. I mean, it's way more than that, but that's the thing I immediately think about when I'm thinking about about mitochondria. So can for people who are unfamiliar, can you briefly explain the role of of mitochondria in our cells? It feels like a huge topic. And obviously we don't have days to do like 
you know, to do a really massive, massive deep dive. But mitochondria, what are they and what do they do? So I would say the the word on the street is that the mitochondria make you energy. And that's what everyone um, thinks of or knows if they know that word. So yes, mitochondria make you energy. And then the classic uh, description is the mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cells. So if you Google it, that's the first thing you see, I think. Um, I'm sure I've used that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so in the last 10 years or so, I've been, uh, whenever I speak about mitochondria, I like to remind people, and this 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 perspective is just a repositioning of where the mitochondria sits in our biology, is that it, the mitochondria is not just there to pump you out energy. That wasn't the mitochondria's first priority oh let's just make john heaps of energy you know pump 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 uh but that's not what it's primarily doing the mitochondria actually have much greater relationships and extensive networks into our biology that's much more than we even uh, think about so in the context of the work i do and where people have got post-infection states of fatigue um what was really exciting to learn when uh, Dr. Robert, Robert Navio started to write about this, I think 10, 15 years ago, was that the mitochondria first are there to fight you viruses and fight infections. So the mitochondria are um, the first uh, port of call, the first steps in innate immunity. So innate immunity would be the first response of our immune system. The adaptive is the learnt response. Um, yeah, so the mitochondria have to face the outside world, the viruses, and uh, eons ago when we first evolved, the main kind, kind of attackers and scary things in the outside world were viruses um, and pathogens that kind of we're going to steal resources from you or eat you. Um, today's world is different because the toxins entered the space. Um, so uh, toxins actually then mess around with that process, but uh, the original process of mitochondrial metabolism is first steps in innate immunity. And then the second step is it wants to use oxygen. So it's an aerobic obligate thing like it has to use oxygen and then if it looks after that first and then it will think okay i've got all this extra spring in my step i'll generate more atp but if that oxygen utility isn't there it's a bit like if you pull back a spring or it's a uh it's a oxygen using capacity and um i show this slide on some of navio's work where the, the ox using oxygen is like how deep is that sink or how deep is that spring to spring back or how shallow is it like you know you can imagine if a spring is very shallow it doesn't have much power to to power yeah so if that using oxygen is really efficient then you spring well into making energy 
Christabel, with with that in mind, like before we get on to the post-infection or sort of injury um, sort of side of things with mitochondria, like as we age, in your view, should we expect some sort of mitochondrial dysfunction the older we get because things don't work as well or our exposure to other things in the environment drain our, I don't know if drain our resources is, is quite the right term, but impact on that mitochondrial function? Yeah, absolutely. That the mitochondrial theory of aging is probably the theory of aging that I subscribe to most because there's various theories of aging, uh, you know, with telomere shortening and various other ideas around aging, um, free radicals and so on. But the, the whole mitochondrial theory of aging and senescence is probably what I think is the most. Um, uh, uh, amenable theory um, and so as we grow older definitely we age because the mitochondria are subject to wear and tear which looks like basically oxidative stress pathogens stealing your resources toxins using up your fuel and yes so as you said as you rightly said de demanding demand and resource but uh, we're probably aging faster than we should. Mm -hmm. And then you use the word mitochondrial dysfunction. So I guess it's just a question of definition because we all think aging is normal. We can't, <laughs> can't reverse it. Um, but then when does normal become a disease and when is dysfunction a disorder and, and how much dysfunction are you happy with and how much, you know, you, yeah, it moves into longevity medicine. Yeah, for sure. And is that something that you also do a lot of work in? Um, I, I I can, <laughs> yeah. but most of my patients come much more with uh, difficult chronic diseases. But longevity medicine absolutely, um, you know, dovetails right into chronic disease because what uh, I've learned from longevity medicine and regenerative medicine, that's that's what I think they like to call it more regenerative medicine. It's the same longevity theories and techniques to try and reverse um, a chronic arthritis that's really hard to reverse and you're using regenerative techniques to do them. So they, the regenerative medicine space, and some don't like it being called anti-aging medicine, but that's how it was called initially, is where things were much more um, uh, novel and people were trying things and it was more cutting edge. And that's how science progresses. It's, it has to be like, you know, uh, it has to be controversial to some initially. It has to be cutting edge. It has to be shocking. It has to be yes. <laughs> unacceptable to others. Yes. And that's how it progresses gradually. But in the last 20 years that I've been working through this field, that's probably where I've learned the most cutting-edge things is from the regenerative space because we can take that and apply to chronic disease. But it's those things that help longevity. Yeah, they're, they're, like, they're on a scale, right, of like, you know, optimal health versus um, not optimal health, I suppose. Yes. And it's, I think that raises such a good point about that, you know, when – when do we view aging as um, accelerated and ex what is an acceptable rate of aging, I suppose, because if we are in an environment as we are, when there's, it's very foreign to us as 
um, humans, if you consider evolution, like the you know the amount of time we've spent in uh, in this type of industrial, I don't know, I can't recall actually what age we're supposed to be in now. It's probably not industrial. It's probably silicone. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you go. The silicone you know, so, age of AI. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Like yeah. what? What? To your mind, like what would be acceptable? I think it's such an interesting question because I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago and someone did a um, did a presentation on anti-aging and there were just all of these factors which were all seemed almost insurmountable to me that we could actually apply them without, you know, several hundreds of thousands of dollars. What do you think, Christabel? Like is that a <laughs> something you think about? I suppose it is. Um, I don't know. I don't think of it exactly as that way because I, I just think of it as how we in, as individuals want to live our individual lives to yes. then progress our micro communities. Yeah. And then if people have got greater aspirations than that, great. Uh, but it has to start with us and the immediate people around us and then the community around and then go ahead and save the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I just think of is what a person wants. So I, I see the people who want to get better yeah. and who don't feel well and who know something is wrong, even if all their blood tests were supposedly normal. Yeah. Um, and so that that's what I would then just call a dysfunction. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Like if you, if you feel really good, have really good energy and, and everything, yeah. And you've got this sort of sense of, um, you know, everything is right with you, then, then that's great. But if that's not the case and your energy is poor and you feel like you should be feeling better and not, then I suppose that's a really good sign yeah. that things are amiss. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit then, Christabel, about fatigue and about um, some of the signs and symptoms that you see in and around it? And obviously, actually, my first question is, long COVID, are we seeing things different with long COVID than we would with any other infection that you can see? Or is it, or, or is sort of post-infection fatigue actually quite normal, but we've never had a spotlight on it before? Post-infection fatigue for certain viruses is quite common. Uh, common doesn't necessarily mean normal because normal has been changing over the years, like how they keep changing our blood test parameters lower and lower or higher and higher because the whole populace is changing. Yeah. So common, com common after certain neurotropic viruses is is the case. Yeah. Uh, like. Um, Epstein-Barr virus, mm. um, herpes simplex virus, and so on, other viruses that gravitate to the nervous system. So that's common, but I won't say is normal, but because I would say it happens because there's some other immune dysregulation that couldn't fix it up fast enough. So then what's unusual with COVID is that it is an extra uh, punch or two. Um, so it is a neurotropic virus that so does gravitate very much to the nervous system. Uh, but what is different about it is that apart from the fact that it's a man-made virus, so who knows how, whether nature would have eventually come to this kind of virus anyway, I don't know. Um, but that the, what's extra with this virus is that the spike protein is extra vascularly injurious. Yeah. 
So, so then we're pulling in more mechanisms, which I think we'll come to probably in long COVID that you you don't see as much in a post EBV uh, viral fatigue or post Lyme viral fatigue because that's another uh, big one: tick-borne illnesses and other infections that can be quite stuck in the system. But yeah. uh, COVID, I think, has got an extra punch or two. Okay. And across the last three years, has the level of post-COVID, post-virus fatigue changed with the different variants? Because I know, obviously, that the the symptoms have sort of changed and potentially the severity appears to have changed. Has the long outcome also changed or is it or has it not really from what i'm hearing uh i don't think it's changed but that's not i don't think statistically backing me what i'm saying or fully researched because we're still in the evolution of it obviously what's changed is the acute presentation yeah um but what we're seeing is irrespective of the acute presentation the people who are going to get the the tail end problem is there because they already have some other vulnerabilities in the system. It's not so much because of how acute they were. So definitely we see people who have COVID that isn't that bad. I mean, it's not fun, like a bad flu or um, thereabouts, but that uh, the post-COVID fatigue is uh, ex- un- unexpectedly bad. Yeah, and you actually mentioned it, and that was going to be my next question. Who in your clinic has have you seen as being most vulnerable or most at risk of, of developing long COVID? Have they been people who have already have this, like an immune sort of challenge or another sort of virus underlying? Mm-hmm. Is that who you mm-hmm. see? So we expected to see it worse in those patients, those with the immune challenge underlying issue and for my patient cohort that is the um, post uh, Lyme like illness Lyme disease vector borne illness type of patients who who aren't already who aren't haven't recovered from that and then got COVID so they're, they're already not well and then they got COVID on top so expectedly we I thought they would be quite bad and that's what we do see and then in some but not all uh, who have had chronic fatigue syndrome before because I guess they've got some degree of vulnerability and, and uh, the, lo- the the just logic common sense to that is just how well have they looked after themselves and how ready were they when they got the COVID um, so those were expected scenarios then the unexpected scenarios that we're seeing um, would be in the the fit uh, exercising group of people, especially uh, youngish people, mm-hmm. teenagers, uh, early twenties, and that's just. I think that's actually just my particular cohort because I think if you talk to other MECFS doctors, they might see some other people, um, but certain young people. Uh, have got significant neuro dysregulation, so self-regulation issues, uh, combined with very poor mitochondrial health, which I think we'll go into in a bit, um, 
like they're just doing everything wrong from the mitochondrial perspective, eating at the wrong time, sleeping at the wrong time, in front of blue light and screens the whole time. So they really have a, a weakened system there. Um, so those are the surprising ones that I'm seeing. But before they used to wake up at four or five to go rowing, you know, three, four times a week and and perhaps exercise a lot because they can and they're young and they're fit but don't feel properly. Yes. Yeah. 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 So is that just a like if you're thinking about other obviously then the the other sort of lifestyle behaviors and stuff like is it like the added stress on their immune system because of all of their training that's then making them more vulnerable in that post infection state? Yeah. You might know a um a group of people called the um the post uh, training syndrome or the um the oh sorry overtraining syndrome yes yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so it's a cohort of MECFS but they were athletes and trained a lot and then got hit by something and fell straight into MECFS yeah so it's it's a bit reminiscent of that really yeah and Christabel what about the population of people who you know when we when with COVID, it was looking at the research and, and hearing some colleagues talk about who they saw as being um, sort of the most severe cases, like people with metabolic syndrome, people uh, with obesity, uh, inflammation. Like, are these people potentially also at risk of this post-infection or are you not seeing that? Because I imagine they've already got a level of mitochondrial dysfunction that might be progressively worse than, say, someone else who is fitter and, and not as much. Yeah, so I'm pretty sure that that cohort is pretty big and and everywhere. It's just that I probably have a bit more of a niche practice with uh, complex chronic fatigue cases. So um, those don't tend to be to be classically already diabetic and have bad metabolic syndrome or, you know, a 45-year-old overweight man kind of thing. Um, but I'm sure out there that that's exactly who's getting very tired, but maybe they're not getting full-blown MECFS. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and then before we sort of move on into um, some of the sort of practical elements of it, you also, I, I believe you talked about vaccine injury at um, the ACMA conference. Yeah. What is the role with the mitochondria in potential vaccine injury? Is it the same as what you've just described? Um, so I had presented a case that's where that vaccine injury was. I presented a case study, I think, on the second day of the conference, and it was a, t a teenager who, uh, actually, I can't remember the case now. Uh, I presented so many cases, sorry. I know. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's um, fine. Just, yeah, because, that's yeah, we're definitely seeing, I am seeing uh, a fair bit of uh, post-vaccine symptoms and injuries, and then Sometimes they settle down and then sometimes they haven't settled and then the person gets COVID and then it's just all starts all over again. So then you don't know what's vaccine, what's COVID, it's both. Um, what I did present in my talk was uh, the numerous papers of how spike protein um, continues mitochondrial dis dysfunction and is behind the myocarditis and is behind the endothelial inflammation and uh, the spike protein is is behind a number of the core pathophysiological mechanisms that 
keep the the dis- disorder going. So, yeah. 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 How long did it take you to sort of figure out the link, you and your colleagues, like actually there's something going on here with long COVID and with uh, vaccine injury, which is very similar to what you would have already seen with those sort of chronic um, complex sort of fatigue cases in your clinic? Like was it quite obvious early on for you, Christabel? Uh, it, we already knew to expect it. Yeah. Um, because it's not just about COVID and COVID vaccines. Already before COVID, there's a significant cohort of people who get injured by vaccines, uh, which would be the type of patients that come to our environmental medicine clinics um, because of the immune dysregulation that they have that other people don't recognize, but that we we do recognize. Um, so small number of people definitely have problems with, you know, the HPV vaccine or the flu vaccine or different vaccines. So so we knew that there would be a group of people that would uh, have a higher chance of problem. And then a, a group of people that we already treat would be those with mast cell disorder, mast cell activation syndrome. And I can't remember which vaccine it was, perhaps Pfizer did have it on their um, documentation right there in the second page or something, um, that that vaccine should be contraindicated in mast cell disorder. So when we saw it's like, okay, I've got a huge population of patients with mast cell disorder, we, we could be in for trouble. Yeah, yeah, so interesting. So, Christabel, how does like the, I want to talk through some of the number of the the lifestyle factors that that do improve mitochondrial dysfunction, of course. Um, how does how do you diagnose mitochondrial dysfunction? How do you know what you're dealing with? Particularly if I mean, obviously, in your clinic, you'll have a range of tests. I imagine that sort of determine it. Uh, for but what about for people who don't have access to clinics like yours or, or something like that? Like what are some sort of signs and symptoms? I mean, they're probably fairly obvious, but it'd be quite good just to sort of run through some of them. Okay. Uh, first, I would just say that mitochondrial dysfunction is probably not just this rare thing over there uh, and that it is a continuum. So you I, mean, I would go so far as to say that most of us would have a degree of it if you want to consider aging and toxins and we're all strung out with various other things and then the mitochondria a bit you know under the weather um so just yeah we we would all have a degree of mitochondrial uh imperfections (laughs) and then um it's only if you use the word mitochondrial disease then that's different. That sits in the world of geneticists, pediatricians, um, metabolic uh, specialists. Uh, so we're not talking about that. Uh, but if that was the case, that's what doctors and GPs would see, very abnormal blood test markers, usually around lactate dehydrogenase, creatine kinase, liver enzyme markers. There's no one. There's no one marker that's just oh that's mitochondrial. It's just a combination where you can see that aerobic and anaerobic metabolism is slowed down and acidic. You might see high lactic acid. You might see high uh, pyruvate. So things like that. That's what then would 
um, uh, make someone suspect that there's a true mitochondrial disease and then you get sent off to geneticists and they have all their own special ways of testing. So we're not really talking about that group of people, so we'll leave that on the side. Um, so then for for people who are just fatigued and wondering, well, how much mitochondrial dysfunction do I have, then actually this is very hard to quantify. And I can tell you of very highly specialized labs in other countries and so on that I have used before and I have experimented with and because I practiced in England and I had access to European tests or I could I can send tests overseas here too. Um, it's just it, that's pretty uh, impractical for most people if the test is going to cost a thousand dollars a test let's say. But because I've done I have had years of doing tests like that, testing out various things, going to conferences where people talk about all these things. I'm just, I can tell you that there are tests out there, but uh, for your average GP in person, just thinking about chronic fatigue and how much mitochondrial dysfunction it is, it probably falls into two camps. Uh, one would be just because mitochondria dictate metabolism. One would be, is there a very visible metabolic um, issue that you can see on blood tests, and any doctor can do this, blood glucose, insulin, HbA1c, leptin, or oral glucose tolerance test with insulins. So that's all doable. And that's the very visible face of mitochondrial dysfunction. Yeah, nice. Um, and then the much less visible, invisible faces of it is kind of all under the tip of the iceberg. Um, so then that's where functional medicine doctors have various other tools that are quite easy to do, but not that cheap. So for example, a urine organic acid test, which is about $400, $300, that shows quite a number of mitochondrial markers. Um, and that's probably what most naturopaths, nutritionists, functional medicine doctors would do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'm kind of going in reverse order to what you asked me because now let's come to the symptoms. Yes, that's fine. <laughs> um, so with symptoms, the common symptoms would be brain fog and post-exertional malaise. So yeah. exercising and then feeling exhausted. Feeling ill. Yeah. Yeah, okay. feeling ill from the exertion. Uh, and that exertion could be a varying degree of exertions. And that malaise could be a varying degree of malaise. So the technical term is PEM, post-exertional malaise. Sometimes that malaise is such bad vomiting and needing to lie down for like one whole day or two oh days. Yeah. Um, and then sometimes it's uh, muscle pain and nausea. Okay. You know. And people who, does the sort of level of malaise relate at all to someone's cardiovascular fitness or does it seem unrelated to, to that? Because I actually imagine that someone who is fitter might push themselves harder, which might actually end up with more malaise rather than a, an unfit person. How did, is there a relationship totally. there? So the exertion is a exertion for that person. So if someone is normally a, uh, you know, runs two, three Ks every day, but then they like sprint up the stairs at home and then they realize that, you know, their legs are unusually heavy. Um, so that's not really a terrible malaise, but they know something's up there. It's like, how come 
that's not right. But maybe someone who doesn't exercise at all, but then they might uh, just struggle to, uh, I don't know, uh, go out, hang the laundry, walk their dog and, yeah. Do normal sort of activities of yeah. daily living. Yeah. yeah. What about POTS, Christabel? Is that all part of it as well? Yeah, so it's a continuum spectrum. So POTS is really bad post-exertional malaise, but it's it's where you can actually diagnose a problem with the heart rate uh, when a person is upright. So because obviously if we feel really sick, tired, vomiting, dizzy, headache, you know, we're going to lie down. Um, but uh, sometimes it, uh, we really absolutely need to lie down because the body actually can't even tolerate uh, a vertical stance with gravity. Yeah, yeah. So that's POTS. Okay. So then, you know, you did such a great job of sort of um, breaking down some of the steps that you take with your cohort to sort of get them on the path to sort of feeling better are we able to run through these and and how they help the well i mean i know i'm talking about mitochondria because it's sort of at the heart of it but how they help the long covid um, fatigue and stuff that people people experience okay so so yeah we'll talk about uh the mitochondrial support steps yes and as you said long COVID, but this does apply to every, every someone, even if they don't have long COVID, but let's say they're really tired from the flu last month. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So this would yeah. apply equally well. Or someone maybe who's a lot sicker, they've got Parkinson's disease and they have that awful fatigue as Parkinson's patients do. Um, so this applies across the board. So starting with nutrition, I I don't know if you heard in my talk I said well because I've been talking about nutrition for you know like two decades yeah um I just made it a bit of a joke as to saying I don't care what you eat <laughs> yeah. um but I care what time you eat it yes. um, so I do care what people eat but I really trying to now drive home the emphasis on what time they eat yes can we talk about that that chrononutrition Pete? why is that so important yeah um so because the mitochondria are uh, these things inside our cells that actually evolved from nature and they are like they uh, were these tiny bacteria uh, that get that got into the um, into our cells or what eventually was going to become a very complex organism cells um, the whole idea is that mitochondria have evolved with nature and then things that have helped us evolve over nature is the, all the forces of nature. So that is sunlight and light um, and also magnetism. So the magnetic fields from the earth, but I didn't really talk about that so much in this, in the talk. And then also, which I didn't go into as well, the cold. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So from a food perspective, it is, and the research is coming out in, in this area, which is awesome, that uh, what time we eat really has a major impact on our oxidative uh, capacity. So our um, oxidative phosphorylation, the kind of energy processes inside the mitochondrial uh, matrix and membranes that is affected by uh, what time we eat and how late we sleep and things like that. Uh, so if we're eating in the middle of the night, then we're just telling our body that it's daytime 
whereas at night we should be recovering and regenerating the system. And is there um, a, because I I have done a bit of reading around um, time-restricted eating and and intermittent fasting and, and things like that. So if, so what is your practical sort of recommendation for for people with that um, eating window? Yeah, it would be to eat when the sun is up and stop when the sun is down. Just that's a really generic rule that's really easy to yeah. understand. Yeah. Uh, but then some people also have to shorten the window even more because of either trying to achieve more fat burning capacity or other reasons. But then I would say then it's better to eat early and finish early. So I prefer that people would eat breakfast at, you know, uh, seven, eight or nine uh, and then finish eating at two, three or four. Yeah, um, because I know it was quite popular in the previous years to go the other way. 16, start start yeah. eating at 2 p.m. and then finish dinner, you know, 8 or something. Um uh, so that this, yeah, that it's not that easy to do that for some people's social patterns, but I think that that's the more um, efficient way for the mitochondria to to rest and recover. Because if we want to do a longer in, intermittent fast for stimulating mitophagy, uh, then it should be to skip dinner and then have a good breakfast. Yeah, and so mitophagy, so this is the purpose of it to um, uh, stimulate that. What is mitophagy? Uh, so mitophagy is, um, well, it comes, it's a similar word to auto uh, autophagy or other people say autophagy. Um, autophagy is when the cells um, sort of regenerate themselves, decides, decide which cell needs to go, which cell to keep, eat up, clean up, throw out the rubbish. Um, and just like, that's what our body does with cancer cells. It, it does autophagy and chews up the, the dead de degenerative and cancer cells, the bad, bad cells. So mitophagy does the same thing, except the my mitochondria do that to themselves. Um, mitochondria decide themselves because there's several hundred in each cell. Let's say if it's a muscle cell, and then there's more if it's a nerve and less if it's something else. Um, so each mitochondria decide for itself uh, what state am I in? What's the degree of disrepair here? Uh, do I need to crumble and make myself die and clean up the mess? Um, or do I can can I keep going or do I join with other mitochondria? So it's mitochondrial fission and fusion. Um, shall I go and you know, join my neighbor over there because I'm dying off and I'll give them the few resources I have left. Um, so the mitochondria decide all that on their own <laughs> somehow. It's just like, wow. Yeah. And, um, but they do that to recover themselves and to keep the cell healthy. Yeah. So it's like they are, uh, they're kind of altruistic. They're like jumping to save the sinking ship. So they go, oh, oh goodness, the cell I'm in, it, we're not going well. We need to jump off and save our resources. We'll kill ourselves and the others can survive. That's what mitophagy is. And fasting uh, supports that process and is essential for that. Okay, that's awesome. And then Christabel, of course, ketogenic diets are similar 
um, sort of health benefits to fasting? Is that something else that you would recommend to a motivated patient? Ketogenic diet is um, is definitely helpful for a lot of reasons, and if a motivated patient motivated patient can do it, it's really great. But it's also sometimes quite hard to do if a patient's got quite a heavy infection load. So the the difficult patients that we see who struggle with that would have maybe they still have a lot of active fungal issues, uh, active Borrelia, Lyme, other infections, uh, because the viral load, the infection load keeps them in anaerobic metabolism. And they feel as if they just, they just need to eat. It's really hard not to eat carbs and really hard to have all the long gaps as well. Yeah. So in the end, even though we like long fasting and ketogenic principles to get the ketones up to help the brain inflammation to help the microglial activation to do all the regenerative things that they do. Sometimes it is quite difficult for a patient and then you just have to do the best you can and the best best you can therefore would be eating when the sun is up and having tons of protein and enough good fats and then do what carbs you need need to do like to get by. Yeah. Okay. And then what about ketogenic, oh, sorry, ketones? Have you explored the use of them with any of your patients, Christabel? Uh, I haven't used like beta-hydroxybutyrate supplements as a ketone supplement consistently because of our supply issues here. They kind of go up on and off in the Australian supply issue in a uh, uh, community. So I know in the US you can buy things more consistently, but we, I haven't um, done that, especially if you try and stick to TGA-approved products. Yeah, yes. um, but uh, what I would use all the time is MCT oil. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is pretty helpful. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And uh, what about, and I know like the, obviously the eating window, the sun up to sundown is important. Um, vegetables, phytochemicals, like, those kind of recommendations do you make recommendations around greens powders for people who don't want to eat like what are, what are your thoughts around stuff like that so if i'm thinking mitochondria i don't even think any of that oh, amazing <laughs> i okay. must say no good yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah i mean it 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 maybe is a blind spot of mine cuz for sure the polyphenols and other uh, plant substances would help the microbiome and then that helps you know, that goes back. There's a lot of mitochondrial microbiome crosstalk, so for sure. Uh, but that that just isn't my big emphasis. And also probably because a lot of my patients already eat quite well. Yes. Uh, they're already mostly what you would call paleo. They mostly already just do meat and veg- vegetables. Yeah. So you just um, get them to double down on that stuff then, in the meat particularly. Uh, the, the enough protein, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And what about supplements, Christabel? Like what do you see is important there? So the key supplements I would focus on would be um some of the the nutrients for um oxidative phosphorylation and the electron transport chain. Mm-hmm. Uh so primarily ubiquinol mm-hmm. and um uh I do also like B1 benfotiamine especially the fat-soluble version of B1, and B3, yep. uh, niacinamide, 
Um, but more often I'd use nicotinamide riboside or nicotinamide adenosine dinucleotide. Okay, yeah. Uh, and then I would often use be using carnitine yeah. uh, as well. For that fatty acid transport? Is yeah, that, yeah. What kind of amounts would you suggest with that? Um, one gram of acetyl L-carnitine. Yeah. Because if I look, like people often ask me about that, and I do you know Dom D'Agostino? Yes. Yeah, he he um, said to me on a podcast that he uses three to four grams a day, um, and then if if someone goes and buys them off the shelf, they often buy the capsules, which has like one hundred and fifty milli, yeah, like like terribly, like quite small, but obviously your amounts are uh, sort of in the gram realm that Dom talks about too. Yeah. yeah, I usually like a minimum of one gram, gram, and sometimes I do two. Yeah, nice. Yeah. yeah. Your ubiquinol, is that like, are you, you must be familiar with MitoQ. Are you familiar with that? And is that like, because there's a lot of research that they suggest it's the best type of uh, sort of product because of the bioavailability. But is that, is that, that's not. Um, so MitoQ, like uh, the company that makes ubiquinol? Yes. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know know that necessarily but yeah yeah um ubiquinol would be the um not ubidocarinone but an activated form of yeah coq10 yeah yeah so definitely use ubiquinol you're not ubidocarinone yeah yeah it's funny because you know some because in my because when you're so exposed to like one brand and you're like that's the best that's the best that's the best and then so many people like so expensive so it's quite good to hear of other successful practitioners using alternative and very successful successfully using other other options for people who might not be able to do the MitoQ route I suppose um, I mean, if you look through the, um, there's some good papers with showing all the different vitamins that do all these different things for the whole um, energy pathway. You could end up on a lot of supplements, you know, like yeah. glutathione, vitamin C, vitamin E, ALA, NAC, zinc, selenium, <laughs> molybdenum, magnesium, B1, B2, B6, B12, like all of those. And so I do, I do think, yes, they all play a role, but I, what I wanted to say about supplements is first I would come back to the redox yeah. state of the mitochondria before pushing the biochemical state. Okay, so don't tend good. to load people with a lot of supplements, like all those things I just said, but I'll tend to just pick a few, but then really try and get them to push the redox state yeah. support. So the redox state support would be hydration, electrolytes, what's your pH, um, you know, trying to use use light and water and magnetism more to balance that redox. Yeah. Now, when you mention magnetism, are you talking about grounding? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I've like. Are you familiar with Dr. Mike Twyman? I think his name is. I don't know that name. He's interesting. He talks about quantum medicine I believe that's what he talks about but he often he he is very um sort of in the circadian sort of biology um grounding yeah yeah Yeah. space and he's he's talked about about that before so is grounding Christabel literally going outside bare feet in grass on sand that kind of thing Almost because nowadays you have to choose your spot. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you can't do it 
on like the grassy bit in between Westfield and (laughs) high rise shopping centers and stuff. Um, but yes, basically all the quantum theories, bio, uh, biophysics is what we're talking about. That's what feeds the redox state of the mitochondria. Yeah. Um, and because I, I, I learned, I've learned a lot over the years and listened a lot to Dr. Jack Cruz, who is a big yes. quantum guy. Um, so that's where I learned this information. So the way you can ground yourself, with, whether it's in the sea, lakes, rivers, volcanic areas, swim in cenotes, uh, you know, um, uh, in New Zealand you would have a lot of volcanic we areas. Yeah. Auckland is like vol- volcanoes, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and where there is an interference of, of dirty electricity of uh, man-made um, uh grids and wiring yeah then that's where you get the best kind of grounding yeah yeah and like what what kind of time frame are we talking in terms of you know what how long would you need to do something like that for um i have not really read that that's very research-based as to how long x number of minutes on y number of days um but in our community who talks about this a lot, you know, everyone will do grounding a little bit every day. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. just because yeah. it's a bit of a of a reset. We live in such an electric electrified world. Yeah. That the um if you can just reset every day, that's what helps. But also the other answer to your question does depend on how sick a person is. Yeah. Yeah. So the sicker the person, and this is what I said in my talks, the sicker the person, the more we need to leverage what nature can do. And so we see those sickest people who leave where they used to live or grew up because there was no light, no grounding, no decent air. It was industrialized. Like, how are they going to get better? They leave it and go and live in somewhere where they can integrate their whole life into nature, watch the sunrise, uh, walk on the beach, have a swim, get in the cold water, or, yeah, by the mountains, rivers, lakes, wherever it may be. Yeah, nice. Um, and then that's where they get well. And you see that all the time. Yeah. 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 It makes perfect sense. Like, you know, like it's, it feels like common sense to me. Now this will be probably, I've, I've seen grounding mats. Is that cheating or is that actually so legit? It's not, it's not that it's cheating. It's just where you plugging it into. <sighs> yeah. So if you are, uh, live in a high rise building and you plug it into your PowerPoint and then it's going down and how is the wiring of that whole building and how well is it earthed or not earthed yes that's the conundrum there when we live in dense areas but you can work with building biologists to measure these things so you can measure the uh the dirty electricity environment um and yeah there are all sorts of measures you can you can try but if you live in 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 a fairly rural areas, just your house and a decent garden around, or neighbors are pretty far away, um, then you can, can stick a copper copper wire down or a grounding rod down yeah. with your bed sheet or your grounding mat or whatever. That's pretty yeah. fun. Yeah. Okay. And you've mentioned cold water a couple of times, and in fact, like it's very like I love jumping in the ocean in winter or like cold showers or whatever, like uh, what kind of, and is, is that because of the potential for that mitochondrial biogenesis? Uh, is that yes. what we see there? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So mitochondrial biogenesis um, 
I mean, when you look in all the 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 usual textbooks and papers on mitochondria, we all know that exercise is the only way to create new mitochondria. So we have to exercise. Like, okay, let's exercise. But some people can't exercise, and actually now there's more information on on cold thermogenesis CT that CT is a really efficient way to create new mitochondria. Yeah, and um, our mitochondria are basically like batteries in the end. And if you are a physicist and know about semiconductor physics and all of that, which um, is what I've learned through Jack Cruz, then the cold makes the uh, the battery basically more efficient, like your semiconductors will work faster. Yeah, yeah. What kind of recommendations do you make to your patients, Christabel? So people have to start where they can because uh, most people are a little bit, um, yeah, don't like the cold. And especially if someone's got dysautonomia and they're quite weak and debilitated, it, it's not a welcome recommendation. Um, and so it's easier to just do grounding, light, sunlight, things like that first. But you, you could you could start with just a face plunge. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so the face plunge is probably more efficient than just trying to do a cold blast shower because everyone hates that and then how long are you in there anyway and it's awful. Yeah. Um, but a face plunge is acceptable to most people and it's even more efficient because of all the neural reflexes in the face and there's a diving reflex in the face and, um, and a submersion is more impactful than just a shower. Yeah, so if you get a ice, a little bucket, like a just a little thing that you can just stick your head in, your face in. Yeah. Um, and then if you need to start to hold your breath longer and longer, you just use a snorkel. Yes, yeah. <laughs> then you can start to keep your face in there 30, 60, 90 seconds, two minutes, three minutes. But it might just be 10 seconds to start with. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so you basically you meet people where they're at with regards yeah. to yeah, and which you do for everything, you know, like yeah, yeah, because you 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 have to. Is there a place for sauna, Christabel? Just to finish off on the cold, but a good uh, good rule of thumb is as people get more used to the cold, for people who like to go in the sea and or do an ice tub or have an ice bath at home, uh, then it's one minute per degree. So if people have worked to work to being able to get to 15 degrees then you stay 15 minutes minutes. yeah that's that's such a good rule of thumb thank you it it's 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 quite a lot because if it's five degrees it's five minutes oh my god I I, I can't do that I'm too tropical (laughs) I haven't haven't trained myself enough yet to get to that degree but you can um, harden up Christabel that's (laughs) that that's a good rule to follow. Yeah, that's yeah. great. And and sauna is that something which is useful at all, or not really to the same extent? So sauna, not for the same mitochondrial biogenesis reason. Yeah, uh, sauna for the infrared light. Yes, for the light, as we said earlier. Yeah. So that could just be a red light for the biomodulation panel. Doesn't have to be a sauna. Yeah. Okay. But if it's a red light sauna and these days they they put them all in together the heat and the near and the fine for red then great for the mitochondria but from the heat perspective um that's not so much mitochondria 
mitochondrial biogenesis, but it is good for detox. Yes. Uh, so then reducing the toxic load, of course, is really important eventually for the mitochondria. But where people have got pots and they're quite weak and they're tachycardic and they have dysautonomia, they don't do heat very well either. They faint, get dizzy. Um so then we just start with red light panels. Yeah, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Christabel, what is your sort of, um, what have you been seeing over the last year or two in terms of success rates with your clientele, with your protocols? Like is there, because I know I talk to a lot of people who are just appear to have been sick for a long period of time and not necessarily hopeless, but really do feel a little bit of despair that they're never going to get back to how they, how they were. So do you get good success? So we have a very motivated uh, patient community and I'm sure that helps a lot um, because they're searching for answers and giving them a lot of information and they're motivated to do these things. Uh, Not everyone's going to be motivated to see the sunrise, not eat after dark, go in the cold. (laughs) You know, it's like, oh, you're asking a lot of your patients take, you know, 10, 20 supplements, don't eat this, don't eat that. It's not easy. Like it's a tough, it's a tough journey to, to take for our patients, but when they take it, they, they do well. It's just a constant step-by-step progression. They, they discover something, they put it in place, they learn from it. Like I haven't talked about, um, uh, blood sugar management and that's more, uh, basic stuff that probably you know a lot of your listeners will know but like I get people to track and we do continuous glucose monitors because they have to learn and see for themselves on their body and then they take all that into account so when yeah when people do all of this that's definitely really positive steps and of course it's not that it's just all that only there are some patients out there that are really quite sick and then we do uh I do refer people into much more um, alternative and outside-the-box therapies that are not available in this country, for example. Yeah, so people go overseas for different treatments, and that's, yeah. sometimes we have to do that as well. And when we do all of that, it does work. Yeah, for sure. Do you see, Christabel, just to finish up, like is there, like, can you see in the future more mainstream-type clinics adopting some of the things that you're doing in your clinic which you've been learning about for years uh mainstream i so when you say mainstream to me that's a seven to ten minute bulk billing okay uh, yeah public medicine don't pay anything doctor you just can't do any of this yeah Mm. That's it. It needs it's it's time. It's coaching. It's uh, showing people the relationship of their bodies to their food, to their nature, to the environment, to the light, to everything they do, how they sleep, how they think, everything. Um, So that takes time. So the other thing I didn't say is that the other reason that we are um, quite successful, it feels, because we work with coaches and in groups, and so we we take time to keep on with this information I run like free patient webinars every month for my patients you know people just log on and they learn a little thing and they just like yeah so it's how do you do that in 10 minute conventional mainstream medicine you just can't yeah Uh, 
but uh, I'm but lifestyle medicine and other doctors who've got more time in their clinics are and more motivation to work with teams mm-hmm. to work with a nutritionist work with a coach refer to an exercise physiologist you know work with a chiropractor they're usually much better at this these things as well yeah yeah yeah, yeah for sure the willingness to do that yeah no that's awesome christabel do you take patients right now is your clinic full like what's the what's uh, the so we we take patients all the time they just go into the uh they, they just go in kind of set intakes yeah nice so like i'll have a intake of new patients maybe three times a year um, but we just do it in a group just so then we can deliver all the information and education as a group. Uh, but the one-on-one appointments with me are one-on-one. It's just, um, the group goes through together. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good, efficient way of sharing the common information yet also you're able to individualize it with your, with your one-on-ones. Yeah. 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 Amazing. Christabel, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Where can people sort of find out more about you and, and some of your information and in your resources? I've seen a few YouTube um, podcasty type things that you've done online. Um, I, it, it's all a bit random what's on the internet and YouTube <laughs> and podcasts because I've done uh, various ones all over <laughs> yeah. and I haven't, I don't put them in one place, but, yeah. um, uh, my clinic website is next practice gen biome. So that's G E N B I O M E. And, uh, that was like the generation biome and, and genes and biome and that's awesome it's so <laughs> yeah. good well we'll definitely put links up to um to where people can find you and a little bit more about your clinic in the show notes um thank you so much christabel really appreciate your time you're very welcome it was fun So hopefully you got a lot out of that conversation and if you know of anyone who is experiencing chronic fatigue or long COVID related complications, please do pass on this podcast episode to them because I think it could be really valuable. Next week on the show, I speak to Dr. Guillaume Millet, all around ultra-distance running and um, exercise physiology. Super interesting. So make sure you tune in to that. Uh, Until then, though, you can find me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, Instagram, Twitter, and Threads at Mickey Willardin. Head to my website, mickeywillardin.com, and uh, catch up with me there. All right, team, you have a great week. See you soon.